Amen. Thanks, band. Good morning, Hope. My name is Davis, and I am one of the pastors here at Hope. And uh, I wear a couple of hats on staff here. And and one of my uh, pleasures this morning and my delight is to just be able to open up God's word with you uh, in the Psalms. If you live in the Twin Cities or have spent any time driving around the Twin Cities and have taken 94 from downtown Minneapolis and gone north or come towards the city on 94 going south, you've likely seen this Minnesota icon. This car on a stick with this Bible verse smacked on the side and this oversized mannequin uh, hoisted over Highway 94, uh, about 100 feet or so. And and, uh, as a kid, I would drive by this car and I, I knew really nothing about cars, didn't know about makes or models, uh, probably knew even less about the Bible. And yet this image would, would always just capture, capture my attention. And I was so enamored by it. I, I, always, I always just stared at it as I would drive by. Uh, this week, I spent some time looking into this car and I found there's a lot of interest in this thing. A lot of bloggers, a lot of car bloggers have picked up on this thing and, and, and written about it, but no one really knows who founded it or why it's there or why there's a Bible verse smacked on the side. And, and so if, if you do know, I actually would love for you to email me, Davis at Hope CC. I could, I could not find who, who made it. But uh, after becoming a Christian later in life, uh, the words that are on the side of this car became to mean more uh, to me. Um, and, and I still don't know much about cars, but those words here on this car matter a, a, a significant amount to me. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 46, which is the chapter that's on the side of this car. And, and I've titled this message, Help, the Earth is Falling, for a number of reasons, uh, but the main one being that the context that this psalm is written is uh, circumstances that highlight a lot of trouble and a lot of reasons for lament as our band just led us in singing. Uh, we're in a series right now in the book of Psalms. We're in week five or so in this series, and if you wanted to catch up on previous messages that have been shared from Hope, You can go to hopecc.com and do so. You can also follow along this morning uh, with the slides at hopecc.com slash slides. Or if you want to look at the notes, you can go to slash notes. For the outline inclined, I've I've given you a roadmap of where we're going to go today. And the psalm neatly breaks into three sections uh, by these verses. And so we're going to look a little bit at the context, which we can call troubled waters. From there, the psalm kind of interrupts itself, and we'll talk more about that uh, with how the sol- what is the solution in troubled times. And then at the end, uh, there's some specific calls to action that we'll look at, specifically, what, what can I do? But this morning, as we look at the text, I want to start with just the first two words. And I, and I want you at home to just take a quick inventory of these words and try and even finish the sentence as you see them on the screen before you. And those first two words are, God is... When you see those two words, I want you to think, what what comes to mind right now? How would I fill in that blank? How would I complete this sentence? Perhaps for some of you, you might use uh, concepts of location. So God is is near, or maybe the opposite, God feels distant. For others, we might be inclined to use an adjective or a verb, like God is love, or God is moving, maybe in these times, these difficult times. I know some of us might even use language of ownership, like God is my light, God is our God and Father. And that language of ownership is where our psalm 
takes us this morning. The writer says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. These three descriptions, first starting with God is our refuge, this place of safety, this place to go to when danger is near. God is our strength, this external source of power and endurance. And God is our help and this external hand of assistance, but he's not only our help, he's our very present help. And for me, when I engage the psalm, some of this poetic language takes me some time to digest. What is actually being said here when we say a sentence like, God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. What, is, what does this actually mean? And so one of the exercises I like to do is, is to help move this text from concept to more concrete. I, I like to just think of uh, these ideas in my own life. Where have I seen these things come to bear? And I'm the youngest of four boys, uh, so I have three older brothers, and, and I'm gonna put a logo on the screen that I'm sure a lot of you are actually very familiar with. It's called Hot, Hot Lots. And, oh, no, you're not familiar with Hot Lots. Okay, you're not, no one here is familiar, got it. No one's familiar with Hot Lots. Well, it was a brand name in the mid, kind of early 2000s that was actually started by one of my brothers uh, for a lawn mowing and landscaping company. And uh, this was my first job. I started my career at Hot Lines, the first seven years of my career, uh, learning to mow lawns and landscape. And, and you learn a lot about life when you mow lawns and, and work with people and customer service. But there's this one instance that comes to my mind when I was working with my, one of my older brothers where I was doing a fall cleanup. And a fall cleanup is exactly like it sounds. You, you show up to the lawns in the fall and there are leaves and gunk everywhere. And your job is to remove all of that and make it look spotless. And so there's a number of ways you do it, but uh, first and foremost, you're raking and you're mowing and you're getting rid of these leaves. And uh, as, a, as, a, as somebody who liked to cut corners in this line of work, uh, admittedly, I would look for ways to, to hide these leaves so we didn't have to keep driving the truck back and forth from these lawns. And on one account in particular, I took all these leaves and I, and I dragged them on a tarp and I was dumping them in the woods right next to the property we were working on. And about my fourth or fifth uh, dumping of these leaves, I hear a, 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 a faint noise, faint voice. So I remove my headphones, and I find that that faint voice had gotten significantly louder, and it was directed towards me. It was a man, and he was yelling, and he was yelling in my direction, and he was moving towards me as he was doing so. And he was using language like, why are you doing this? Why are you throwing someone else's leaves in my garden. And he also had a British accent, which somehow made it a little bit more intimidating, like I had hurt the queen or, or something. And I was very scared. And, and the shouting continued until uh, I made eye contact with him as a deer in the headlights. And then I saw his gaze just go right above me, right behind me. And he stopped shouting. And I turned around to hear my brother's voice saying, what seems to be the problem? And as he said it, he folded his arms. And in asking that question, what seems to be the problem, he shouldered the responsibility of my actions on himself, and in folding his arms, he in essence said, this is done. This, this conversation and the way it's happening is not taking place like this anymore. And it was a very formational experience for me, very impactful in my life uh, for two main reasons. The first one is that in that moment, I realized I am not awesome. It wasn't the first time in my life I realized that, but it was a very loud moment in my life where I realized I am not awesome. Look at this mess that I caused. But two, 
Someone's got my back. My brother, who's bigger and stronger and smarter than me, or at least he was back then, uh, he's got my back. He is my present help in this trouble that I have caused. And so when I read about God being our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble, encounters and experiences like that allow me to see is God is more present. God is stronger. God is more of a refuge than even an older brother intervening in circumstances and situations where I have messed up. And this is what the Israelites, the people of God in the Old Testament would do when they'd be writing these Psalms. They would think back on circumstances in their lives and they would take the situations that God intervened in such loud ways and they would put them before themselves as they meditated on these experiences. One of the most significant watershed moments where this took place was right after the Israelites were rescued physically from the captivity of the Egyptians. God miraculously saved them and opened up this water that stood between them and the promised land, and he pulled them through. And at the end of that, in Exodus 19, we hear him talking to these people. He actually calls Moses up, and he says, Moses, this is what I want you to say to these people. He says, I want you to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And I want them to be a people that recognizes and remembers these things. And God's story doesn't end here, though. In the big picture that he's telling, that physical rescue wasn't the last time he would save their necks. In fact, the story begin, continues to unfold, and we see that the Israelites are, are not yet out of the woods. And that's what we're seeing now in Psalm 46. We're given the context now here in verse two of why the psalm is being written. After remembering that God is a refuge, we're told why we won't have fear in the midst of these circumstances that they're experiencing. And this is what he says. He says, therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. I want us to, to kind of take this in because this is poetry. And so sometimes it's, it's easy to get lost in, in the high language that is before us. And so just in bullet point form, the psalmist says, therefore, we're not going to fear, even though our circumstances are such that the earth is giving way. If you think of a ride at, at Valley Fair, like the power tower, where you're brought up super high and all of a sudden the floor just falls out underneath you and you're free falling. The psalmist is saying here, there are circumstances and situations in life where that's not gonna feel like a ride. Where you're not gonna be securely in a seat knowing that this is actually just for an adrenaline rush. No, he says, in fact, the ground is gonna feel like it's falling out from underneath you and you are free falling. But more than this, the mountains themselves are going to fall into the heart of the sea. Mountains, this demonstration, this illustration and picture of security and strength, even they are going to fall into the sea and the sea itself is gonna be roaring. And these waters are going to be troubled and there are circumstances where you will feel that. And lastly, he says, and the mountains quake with their surging. The picture is one of constant calamity and fear. 
And I did some work this week. I, uh, granted, my, my Hebrew is a little bit weak, and, and Hebrew is the language that most of the Old Testament is written in. And so I had to do some double-clicking and, and read some people about, this is, this is another way to interpret what's happening here. And, and, I, and I did end up finding some, some consensus from some modern scholars in particular that said basically what he's saying, this, the scene he's describing when he says, we will not fear, is kind of like when the calendar changes from 2019 to 2020. In other words, if you're, if you're a fan of The Office, your plans maybe heading into the new year were similar to that of Kevin bringing his chili in to the office to share with his coworkers. He's so excited. He spent so much time and, and 2020 comes and, well, he ends up in the fetal position after making a mess of himself, burnt and unable to now share his chili with his coworkers. In all seriousness, 2020 has looked a lot like the poetry being described here in Psalm 46. There is trouble. The, 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 the ground beneath us in many ways is falling for all, all sorts of people. And I've, I've heard from many circumstances and situations of those who call hope home. But in addition to the things that are taking place on a larger scale, there, there are personal things as well. Loss of family members, a spike in anxiety and loneliness. All of these taking place in the midst of economic uncertainty, a global pandemic that has uh, shut down so much of what we know. And in the past two weeks, a further revealing of a deeper pandemic that has marked our nation for so many years with the loss of life of George Floyd at the hands of police. 2020 has been in so many ways like someone taking a, a rug and just snapping the corners and the dirt that has always existed there flying up in front of us. And it's clouding our judgment and we're unable to see very clearly. And so understanding God as refuge and strength and positioning ourselves in the midst of trouble and the circumstances that are being outlined here in Psalm 46 allows us to ask that question, where does this stuff come from? Where, does the, where do these troubles, these troubled waters even that are being described here in Psalm 46 come from? Why are they here? Why is this happening? Anthony Bradley is a professor and, and scholar and author who, who answers this question well in one of his books. And, and he says this, he says, the entrance of depravity into the world as a consequence of the fall seen in Genesis 3, the third chapter of the Bible, greatly affected mankind's ability to function as the person originally designed and created to exhibit the attributes of the creator. He says, in fact, the image was impaired, affecting everything, including man's ability to think correctly about the world. Not only are humans morally and intellectually limited, but also because of the implications of the fall, human nature is predisposed toward things unintended by the creator. Combining human sinfulness with the overall fall of the created order has led to every form of injustice and error imaginable. Bradley, Bradley says a lot there for us. Anthony, he's, he's outlining a few things and I wanna look at it a little bit closer. He first says, the entrance of depravity into the world as a consequence of the fall is ultimately the thing that has led to every form of injustice and error imaginable. Now depravity is not a word we use a lot or maybe if you've heard it, you've often heard it in religious contexts. But really depravity at the end of the day just means corruption. And the story of the Bible starts with God creating everything good and mankind 
or humankind turning from God, being cold towards him and not really wanting anything to do with him. And sin follows that action. And corruption takes place on the level of everything. This, This idea of total corruption that Anthony Bradley is describing here is not that everything is as possibly bad as it can be, but instead he's saying everything has been touched by the fall, by the corruption, by sin itself, our relationships, our jobs, our human hearts, the societal structures that have been put together by human beings that have been affected by the fall are all taking place right before us. And so in answering the question, where did troubled waters come from? Anthony Bradley is helpful in in helping us see. It comes from the fall, from human beings turning from God, being cold towards him, not wanting anything to do with him, and trying to establish ourselves as their own God. He also says something really significant here. He says, in fact, it's not only just that we experience these things, but the way that we process them has also been affected by sin's entrance into the world. That means we're gonna gonna need some intellectual humility as we go about trying to process all the things taking place around us and within us in a world that has been harmed by Genesis 3 and all of our partaking in that since then. And so this is the context of Psalm 46. The waters are troubled, the mountains are falling. God is our refuge, but we are in deep business. And some translations actually within these three sections end with this word selah. There's not a lot of clarity as to what this word meant in the ancient times, but most people generally agree that selah basically means mic drop. Selah basically means I'm gonna present an idea and I just want you to think on that, okay? And so in the midst of Psalm 46, in this first section, the writer of the Psalm is saying, things are bad. The earth has fallen out beneath our feet and we need help. That's the starting place of our psalm, but we don't end there. No, we jump right into verse four, and this is one of the reasons I love God's word. It says so much to us and meets us wherever we are in our circumstances and situations. And in in asking that question, how are things gonna get better? What's gonna calm these troubled waters? The psalm interrupts itself without much explanation or without definitions. It just starts talking about the solution. Where there was once troubled waters, we then we were about to see a river just replace it, interrupt it, speak into it. Where mountains are quaking and, and stones are falling into the sea, God is going to open his mouth. He's going to speak and stones are going to melt. This is what the psalmist says. He says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy place where the most high dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Did you hear that? Did you see the way the psalmist interrupts himself as he's writing this? It's almost like God is just interrupting his train of thought. And he says, no, this is what I want you to talk about now. I'm not even going to explain it yet. I'm just going to tell you. These circumstances are going to be interrupted. Nancy DeClasse Walford and her coworker Beth Tanner nail this in their commentary on the Psalms. Listen to these ladies. They say, the scene changes subtly but dramatically in verses 4 to 7. These, ver- these verses focus on the city of God. The noisy and foaming waters of verse 3 are transformed into verse 4. 
with a river and its streams that make glad the city of God or make the city of God joyful. God dwells in the midst of this city and the quaking and the trembling of the mountains have ceased. They go on. Even though the nations are agitated and quake, God's voice has sounded and the earth will not tremble. All of the geographic elements and many of the verbs used in verses one to three, quake, tremble, sound, are present in verses four to seven. But in the latter verses, the chaotic elements have been transformed to peaceful symbols of the presence of God. I love that. There's not a lot of explanation. It's just, it's just saying, this is what's happening. God is interrupting the circumstances and the troubled waters. And he does so with this river. Notice first that this river, this outside force of water, is making the city of God glad. And a helpful strategy when, when reading the word, when reading the Bible and picking it up and you feel stuck and you're just kind of asking, what, what is this river? What, how does it work? How does it make the, the city of God glad? And, and what is God's voice saying when we say the earth is melting as a result? One of the, one of the ways I like to uh, just approach the word when I have one of those questions is to think of it like a theme that allows you to look at the whole story and, and just pull that theme out and see where else you see it. In other words, it's kind of like a thread. If you were just pulling that thread along a seam, and this theme would be river in this case, you just watch where it responds along the rest of the story. And the theme of a river within the Bible is significant. And, and if we had more than the four hours we have together, I would list out every account, but we don't have as long as I'd like. And so I just want to show you a few places in Scripture that God brings up this river that makes the city of God glad. It actually begins in the opening pages of scripture before the fall happens, before sin enters the world, God outlines the details of a river. When he's creating everything, when he's created the garden, he's created humankind, he just points out the fact that he made this river. And there's a, it's a physical river, and what the river does is it actually waters the garden of Eden that he has made. So it provides physical sustenance and life and like we think of uh, watering a garden, it washes away impurities, and it's physically doing this. So that's the starting place. So as, as we just think of a river, God opens the story, and he points to a river. I skip a lot of instances where rivers come up, and I want to look at one with the prophet Zechariah. This is more towards the middle of the story, and, and Zechariah is a guy who, who thinks God's thoughts after him. That's what a prophet does in the Old Testament, and, and he, he, he picks up on this theme of a river, but he points to the future with this theme. And he says, on that day, on a future day, there's gonna be a fountain or a river that will be opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, the Israelites, these people that we've been interacting with in the story. And when that river opens up, it's going to cleanse them from sin and impurity. And so we're watching this, this thing that started as a physical river and it's, it has a physical job of, of providing life and sustenance. And as the theme grows throughout the story, we're starting to see it take on new form. This river now has a spiritual element to it, one of cleansing and providing life to more than just the physical body, to more than just the physical earth. It's actually providing a spiritual form of sustenance, a cleansing of sin and impurity and the effects of the fall. Well, if you fast forward to the very end of the story in Revelation, which uses language that's similar to the Psalms, very high and, and lofty and even poetic uh, throughout, the writer of Revelation also talks about a river at the very end. 
And he's, here's what he says in chapter 22 in the first three verses. He says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. I want to zoom in on a couple of phrases he's using there. So we're starting to see that the river has a source. The river that's been flowing even since the beginning of time, it has a source. And God wants us to see at the end of the story that that source is this tree of life. And it's a tree of life that removes the curse of the fall. The effects of total depravity that we've seen on the circumstances of our earth have been healed and removed at the end of time because of this tree of life. So the river that flows and provides healing and spiritual cleansing flows from the tree of life. And that theme is the very climax of scripture. The apostle Paul, when he's writing the New Testament, he uses a lot of the same language. And even that that same word here that we see for the tree of life is how he describes the death of Jesus Christ. God, the son who came to earth. Here's what he says. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So he points to this tree where Jesus died, this this form of and symbol of death that Jesus climbed so that he could bear the penalty of sin and the weight of depravity of the world. And Paul says that tree of death has become a tree of life because of what Jesus has done. And Peter, another author within the New Testament, he he riffs on the same theme and he says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So Peter is picking up on what Paul is putting down and he's saying that tree of life, that source where the river flows from actually shows us that the river itself is the blood of the lamb, the precious blood of lamb, worth more than things that perish, worth more than the ways of these ancestors that led to nothing, this empty way of life. Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Look at the tree of life upon which the prince of glory died and from his side poured a river of blood that offers cleansing for your sin. And throughout history, The church has recognized this river is the blood of Jesus. They've they've written hymns that show us there is a fountain or a river that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners like us who are plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. I became a Christian a little bit later in life and so I didn't have the benefit of reading a lot of these stories that I know a few of you have grown up with. Stories like the Chronicles of Narnia and, uh, and so I, re- I got to read them just later in life. And I actually just read The Silver Chair, uh, which is what this picture before you is based on. Um, somebody who works for Disney put together the image, and it's, it's beautiful, and it communicates so much. Uh, but one of the things I love about C.S. Lewis in, in writing this is he wrote, it to, he wrote it and dedicated it to his niece. And he said to her, I'm sorry it took, you, took me so long to write this, because perhaps you're, you're too old for fairy tales now. 
But I look forward to the day when you're old enough for fairy tales again, because there's a lot to be communicated in these stories that I've written for you. And if you're unfamiliar with the Chronicles of Narnia, it's okay. I was too, until very recently. There's this character who's named Aslan, and he, and he identifies in so many ways with this Christ, with Jesus, and the different attributes that he has and the laying down of his life and how only he can provide healing for the trouble that the main characters of these stories get into. And there's a super powerful scene in the silver chair that I want to read to you where this character, Jill, has gotten, in, gotten herself into quite a mess, a mess that's far bigger than the mess I was in in, in Hotlines. Uh, she, she's recognizing that she, has, she is responsible for so much of the pain of the world and she can't bear it. And she's been up all night crying in the woods and she wakes up to the sound of a stream. And she recognizes in that moment how thirsty she is and how, how parched her soul is after all of these tears. And I, and, I, and I pick up here on page 19, it says, as she's following the stream, she comes across it. But although the sight of water made her feel 10 times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open, and she had very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, said Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she could not mind being eaten by the lion. If only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken this. Then the voice said again, if you are thirsty, you may come and drink. It was deeper, wilder and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I, if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and I must look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen this stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You needn't drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. A drink from the river that made the city of God glad. Jill has tasted it and encountered this lion. Jesus, in his ministry in John chapter 7, on the last and greatest day of the festival, he stands up and he says in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water 
will flow from within them. Jesus recognizes that there is no other stream. He is the way and the truth and the life to get to God and for all of the troubled waters to find their stillness. And his invitation is one that says to us, desert-wandering, soul-parched sinners, lost in this world, unable to put together all of the pieces of how we got here, and even participating in making the circumstances worse, come, come and drink. Come and be satisfied. Lay your deadly doings down and trying to fix yourself and come and taste the most refreshing water you have ever tasted. In response to our troubled waters, God puts our problem on his shoulders. He makes our problem his problem, and he says, I am your solution. Come to me and drink. Well, what then are we to do? How do we then respond in our times? What can I do? And and here in, in, in Psalm 46, we finally encounter the first time the psalm has told us to do anything. It's been a long time. It's been, a, it's been seven verses until we finally hear from the author. Here's something for you to do. Here's what he says. He says, come and, and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bows and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So the first verb, the first call to action that we've seen now in the midst of the troubled waters of Psalm 46, arguably the psalm for troubled waters, for describing circumstances and settings that are beyond us. The first call to action is here in verse eight. And it's a call to come and to see. Come and see what the Lord has done. And the language that follows it is how he has taken the wars and the things that have been working against people for so long and he has brought peace. He has shattered the bows and melted the shields and swords. And this call, this invitation is from Jesus. He says, come to me, the only one who has been able to say to the wind and the storms, be still. Come to me, the only one who has been able to take troubled waters and silence them, to interrupt storms with a river that brings healing and hope, to interrupt systems of brokenness and provide pathways forward. He says, come to me and I will lead. The second one though, and this is the verse that was tatted on the side of the the car on a stick on Highway 94, Psalm 4610, and it says this, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And there's, there's kind of two corrective pathways that this call to action does for us in these times. The first is for those, who are, those, those of us who are tempted in the midst of troubled waters to take action by ignoring problems and, and to just stay in our lane and say, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm just gonna stay here This call to action is to say, be still and know that you and I and us are far more a part of the problem than we likely realize. Come and be still and hear from the one who has taken the problem away and has provided security for you to be able to look rightly 
at the problem and say, I have contributed to this. I am responsible. Jesus says, be still. And two, to those of us who thinks the problems might be too complex, Jesus is saying, be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted. I will be made famous. That's what that word exalted means. I am going to be made much of because I am the solution. And I love you. And I have provided a pathway forward for you. Come, listen to me. Come and be still with me because I am always at work and I will light a pathway forward. These two themes of come and see what the Lord has done and be still and know that I am God are most exemplified in my mind at the very end of Luke's gospel. It's one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. And if you know me, you've likely heard me, you've likely heard me talk about it. I love it so much. There's so much uh, in these words for us. It's described as the, the road to Emmaus, and there are two men who are walking on this road. And it's on the heels of lots of tragedy in their city. And they're walking and they're discussing all of the facts of everything that has just happened. And they're talking about it, and, and it says they're downcast and, and feeling hopeless in the midst of recounting the circumstances of their city that they love. And this is the first instance we've seen Jesus in Luke's gospel since he climbed the cross and died for the sins of humanity and then rose again from the dead. The first time we've seen him after rising from the dead in, in Luke's gospel is as he approaches these two men, as they're listing all the facts of everything that's just taken place. This is what it says. As these two men stood still and their faces were downcast, one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, as Jesus, asked, Jesus first asked, what are you guys talking about? Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Do you live under a rock? And Jesus says, you'd be surprised, but I digress. Are you the only one who does not know what has happened in these last days? Jesus says, what things? They reply, about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the guy, and he ended up dying. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. This took place a couple of days ago. In addition, some of our women, some people in our crew amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they still did not see Jesus. Do you hear Anthony Bradley's words from earlier? Unable to put together the pieces, they have the facts before them and they list them before Jesus. Here's all the things that just went down and they're downcast, even at the sight of the empty tomb. And Jesus says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And I love this. It says, in beginning with Moses, who wrote the beginning chapters of the Bible, beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and then all the prophets, all of the Old Testament, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he's saying, you have the scriptures, you've read these things. 
all of these things testify about me. The son of man who is going to open the door to the rivers that have stood closed to us for so long. I am the one who will bring the healing. I imagine him walking through these different passages like from creation and when God first spoke the world into existence, Jesus saying, even that was about how I was going to recreate you in me. Or even taking the theme of the river and walking us through how he did that. Jesus is saying, be still and know that even the scriptures testify about me. And on the first day that he rose from the dead, he approaches two random guys. And his highest priority is to explain to them, the scriptures have so much to say to you in this time. They have so much to speak into your lives. Would you be still? Would you come and hear from me? When we open up the scriptures alone or in our small groups or on a Sunday morning, I like to think of ourselves as these two individuals walking on this road. We're looking at the contents and we're trying to understand what it is. And Jesus is here in our midst, closer than he's ever been since he's ascended to the throne. And he wants to take you, he wants to take me, he wants to take us by the hand as we open these contents. And he wants to say, do you see me? All of these things point to me. Be still and know that me, the one who quieted the real storm, the physical storm with my disciples, I have said to your sin, your death, to the enemy of your souls, be still. I have died for you so that you may now come and see what I have done. Come and be still with me. I just have two points of reflection for us as we apply this message from Psalm 46 to us. And the first is, will you let the good news of the river that flows from the tree of life direct your response to trouble? Even now, in the midst of your personal life, in the midst of our corporate life as a city and as a church, as we move forward, will you let the river that makes the city glad show you and light up the path for you forward? And secondly, what's one way in your life this week that you can be still and know that Jesus is God. So that when you drive by the car on a stick on Highway 94, that comes to your mind, Jesus, you are God, and you have told me to be still.